Welcome to the Outer Realm with Michelle DeRoche and Amelia Passano. Airing live on the United Public Radio Network, 105.3 FM in New Orleans. Welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday night segment of The Outer Realm. Had a little glitch there. Don't ask me why. It wasn't working with me. <laughs> anyway, we're broadcasting live here on the United Public Radio Network and UFO Paranormal Radio Network, 105.3 and 107.7 FM from the beautiful city of New Orleans. We are fully sponsored by the amazing folks over at Folgers Coffee, who have been a part of our journey since the very beginning. And thanks to them, we are here not one, but two nights a week. So thank you, Folgers. We appreciate you so very much. Also, big thank you to Dr. Snick, the sonic surgeon, Justin Snicker, for his contribution of time, his voice, his music, for our intro and outro. He's an award-winning composer of Halloween horror, sci-fi, and dark wave electronic music, which can be found anywhere that good music can be found. Also, big thank you to Steve McGinnis, um, the mind and the artwork behind our art, of course. Uh, check him out on Instagram and check him out on Facebook. He's got stuff ready to go, and he does beautiful commission pieces. So big, big, big thank you to Steve McGinnis. Tonight for the first time. I'm really excited about this, and um, I'm really grateful that he could make it on last minute. Dennis Stone. And he's the owner of the amazing America Stonehenge, located in New Hampshire. Uh, very exciting. I thought to myself, how have I not been here? So I'm really looking forward to hearing all about it. Uh, if you guys want to interact with, of course, us and Dennis, you're going to have to head over to one of the eight platforms. And um, that is for tonight. Uh, YouTube, UFO Gods and Extraterrestrials, The Outer Realm, UFO Paranormal Radio. Then we head over to Facebook, uh, UFO Paranormal Radio Network, United Public Radio Network, News on the Flip Side, Joe Montaldo, UFO Undercover, Canada's Most Haunted, and The Outer Realm, of course. So please remember, we will get to you guys as soon as we possibly can, but picture this like eight chat rooms like a super highway of chat going into like a one lane it's kind of like that we have a lot of comments that do come in from different areas and we do try to keep up with the guests so we will do our very best to get to all of your comments but please be patient with us and i see he's chiming in so let's go right to the the bio let's get a nice absolutely time. dennis stone good, good. is the president of america stonehenge he graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977 with a degree in aviation management and was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before his retirement in 2016. America Stonehenge was opened up to the public in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. Dennis has been involved with America Stonehenge for most of his life and has always had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. 
Since retiring, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, amongst other new discoveries. He's taken numerous courses and traveled extensively to ancient sites, both in the U.S. and internationally. So please, let's welcome Dennis Stone to the show. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Woo. Hi. I know. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> Does How she look you? excited? I know. <laughs> yes, yes, I am excited. So, how are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me on this evening. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's such a pleasure. It, I'm just really grateful that you can do it on such short notice because I, you know, things drop off. People are like, oh, I can't make it. Oh, I've got the big C today. <laughs> like, not C, like, you know, you know, <laughs> the pandemic C. Anyway, it just seems to be recycling again. And we're just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But we are very grateful and we appreciate you so much for joining us short notice. Everybody's already chiming in the chat room. Um, what we're going to do as comments come up, Amelia will read them out because we have probably 80% of our listenership is audio. So they're listening on servers literally all over the world um, on different sites as well. So they can't actually see the comments. We're going to do something like this. So you can see them and then you'll be able to answer and Amelia will read them off and then we'll go from there. So everybody be patient with us. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, where would you like to start? It's all so exciting. Um, I mean, I'm, I always thought, you know, I'm pretty versed in a lot of historical things and archaeological things. And I have to say, I was completely blindsided by this. And I watch all of the shows <laughs> that this has come on. So I'm thinking, I've probably seen this and been in awe, but not really pieced together the whole story behind it. So why don't you take us um, down that whole the whole road as to what exactly is this amazing site that you call America Stonehenge? Well, it is an enigma. We're not sure who built the site. Uh, we think it was built about 4,000 years ago. And uh, as my dad used to say, it's a well-kept secret, but that's not our intention. So you're finding out about it. it's not unusual. That happens quite a bit. <clears throat> uh, next year, we'll have our 65th year that we've been open to the public. Wow. Uh, it actually has been worked on archaeologically since 1937. It's been written up, you know, in different books and magazines, different TV shows, but it's still really not that well known, as you know, you know, <clears throat> we are trying to get the word out. But the site, we think, is an ancient ceremonial site We're located in North Salem, New Hampshire, about mm -hmm. 40 miles from Boston, right up Route 93, exit three. It's a very easy uh, hike up the highway. And we're in southern New Hampshire, about 30, 20 miles from the ocean. The biggest river near us is the Merrimack River, one of the largest rivers in New England. It's about five miles away. Beautiful. <clears throat> yeah. In the Spigot River, which is a tributary, goes right by the bottom of our hill on the west side. But the site consists of about 110 acres today. Uh, these are stone ruins. Uh, they're rough stone constructions. Um, they sit over the entire hill pretty much. But the main site, and I sent you a number of photographs of different parts of the site, but the main site has about one acre of stone structures, chambers, plaza, courtyards, um, and underground drainage system that covers the entire one acre. It keeps it dry. So somebody actually engineered a complete underground storm system drain uh, to keep the place dry before they actually built the chambers over it. But we don't think it's a living site. We don't believe it's like you know, the Flintstones, we lived in these chambers. However, they do little, 
look a little bit like some of the Flintstone homes. They have stone right. roofs. They do. And some of the roofs weigh up to 28,000 pounds of very, very large slabs of stone that were quarried and then placed on top of the structures, hmm. uh, which is a little unusual. We know farmers and uh, early settlers moved stone around. They built in New England about 240,000 miles worth of agricultural or historic walls. But our walls actually appear different than these walls. And um, we'll get into that in a little bit about the serpentine walls and okay. some of the other different shapes. Yeah. yeah. But um, it is an astronomically aligned site, too. So ceremonial site, possibly mm -hmm. burial, possibly a place of uh, religious practice. And I would imagine, uh, you know, um, during ceremonies like the winter solstice, summer solstice, spring and fall equinox, people would come up and celebrate the hill is about 360 feet above sea level, and the site sits on top of the hill. And that's not unusual mm -hmm. for an ancient, you know, ceremonial site to be up high near the heavens, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> where the people lived is still a mystery to us. Uh, if it was a domicile site, a place of living, you'd find the refuge, what we call the middens, all the trash left behind. Even if a lot of them are perishable, you still find a lot more of either pottery or stone tools, utensils, weapons, that kind of thing. And we have found those on the site, but not the great quantity you would find from people living on the site. Right. You know, it's just not like that at all. I will say that our site is kind of the Reader's Digest of these sites. And we're not the only site. Uh, my dad got involved in 1955, and they knew of about maybe two dozen sites throughout the Northeast. Today, hmm. that number, it's not only in a greater area from Canada, Quebec, and Ontario, all the way down to Virginia, we're finding these stone ruins, but about 800 different sites. So a site could be like ours with 106 acres of chambers, walls, and we mentioned the serpentine walls and constructions. It could be one chamber like in Windham, New Hampshire, just one structure, or it could be like North Stonington, Connecticut. And North Stonington is in the South Shore of Connecticut. Only six years ago, I became familiar with that. There's 8,000 different stone structures in that town of 35,000 acres and 25 different categories of structures. And they look just wow. like what we have in our site, except ours is kind of compressed on about 110 acres. So our site's a little unusual, as you probably saw looking at the photographs, but mm -hmm. it's not the only site around. It's sad because across the nation, these structures exist. And we weren't taught these in you know, elementary school, grammar, high school, even going to college, you know, uh, right. most people never hear about these things or even on the media, you know, except right. for your, we appreciate your media because it is getting the word out because a lot of these chambers are being destroyed today by development. Mm -hmm. And if you can work out something with contractors, like that chamber out there, if you can build around it, or if you're putting a highway, if you can build around it, that'd be wonderful. And then it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. But when my dad got involved, uh, there's a, couple of loops around Boston. There's uh, Route 495, it's an outer belt, and also Route 128, which is part of Route 95 from Maine to Florida. And when they put in 495, there were some beehive, what we call beehive, look like a beehive kind of structures, like you see in mm. Ireland, kind of dome yeah. shape. They're yes. no longer there today, you know. So 60 years ago, they were putting the road in. My dad got to see them, I think, photographed them, and they're no longer there today. I think today, maybe they would try to build around them, which again would be a great, a great, you know, win, win thing, you know, yes. get your highway yeah. and save the structures. So we're trying to get the word out to protect these sites from vandalism, from destruction, and also to try to get more research done on them, you know, investigation and that kind of thing. Right. Um, it's right. a slow, oh. slow struggle, actually. <clears throat> it is. It's fascinating <clears throat> to me when you look at the technology, when you say how heavy these, these large stones are, and when you think about how far back you think they go, 
I mean, it could be back mm. even further. Like, who really knows? Um, unless there's some way of testing. How? I mean, who do you think could have had that type of technology to build some of these things? Like, mm. it's sophisticated when you look at it for the time. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, they did definitely uh, put a lot of work and effort into it. And on our side, it looks like they planned it, especially with the underground drain system. Some of the drains run 75 feet. They carve channels to the bedrock, and the channels actually lead into underground tunnels, if you would. And some of them are large enough for a little kid to crawl into. And they keep the main site dry from snow melt and, and rain and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, and the rock, it's granite. It weighs about 163 pounds per cubic foot. And so we can estimate the weight of these structures, you know, on the stones without picking them up, just do the dimensions, you know. And yes. like I say, one of the uh, largest roof slabs is about 28,000 pounds. So it's no easy <laughs> task moving that. No. <laughs> and no pick, putting it up on top of the chamber, you know. And yeah. uh, the other thing we found out over the last 40-something years, one of our researchers, Dr. David Stewart-Smith, he started with us in 1978. And he had already mm -hmm. worked for the British government doing repairs in Scotland and in England wow. uh, on megalithic and medieval structures. He uh, went over there on 1972. He's from Connecticut originally. When he came back in 77, he learned that our site existed plus others. And he was kind of blown away because he had seen very similar type structures in Europe, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, in Western Europe, you have Stonehenge, but there's 50,000 other megalithic sites throughout the entire Western part of Europe. And these go from the uh, Neolithic into the Bronze Age. Right. And they're just all over the landscape. So there's technology on that side of the ocean that was able to do this. Yes. Um, so on this side of the ocean, Native Americans in New Hampshire, recently I found out that they go back as early as 13,000 years ago in the western part oh, of the yes. state. The New Hampshire Archaeological Society is finding evidence over there. We thought, you know, years ago they used to say, well, maybe several thousand years. And then it went back to about 10. And now they're finding evidence of 13,000. And the glaciers said, actually, the younger Dryas was still around around that time. So I don't know how these people made a, made a living or survived. But they mm. did. They did. Yes. And so yeah. Native Americans have been in New Hampshire for that long. And people often say, well, if your site is 4,000 years or older, who was here? Well, we have people here in New Hampshire going way, way back into yes. the Paleo, going into the early Archaic, into the Archaic. Were they the ones that were responsible for these sites across the Northeast? I definitely would look at them first. Absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. and they may have had a big, big part of this, maybe 100 percent. But there are some interesting features and different pieces of evidence suggest that people were coming over not only before Columbus, but possibly before the Vikings. You know, they were in Canada 1,000 years ago, but there's some other pieces of evidence suggesting they're here a much earlier time period. Right. Um, so that's a great question. We haven't been able to answer. Our minds are still open, but mm -hmm. we are finding similar features from here, not only up in Canada, you know, and you know that area in Ontario and that area up there, oh, Peterborough, yes. Ontario, yes. but in the Baffin Islands in Canada, coming right into Newfoundland, right into uh, Nova Scotia. But <clears throat> there are interesting features out in Alberta, Canada, too. On the, I think it's called the Milk River out there. There are inscriptions that seem to be old world inscriptions. Mm -hmm. And um, there are serpentine walls and other features that are in Canada going all the way out to California, actually. Uh, near Mount Shasta, we have serpentine walls oh, in a town called Mount Weed. Shasta. Yes. Yeah, such a beautiful area. Very, very spiritual. Very, as you know, you know yeah, There's a lot of stuff in Mount Shasta. <laughs> so we got to yeah. go see that. See some spirit walls, mm -hmm. and go out see Mount Shasta and the cave there too. The caves there. You know? Oh yeah. So yes. that was in my my itinerary. I was going to speak at the uh, 
um, out of Santa Cruz at the university in 2020. But as you mentioned, COVID, <laughs> it kind of was a conference and the whole thing got messed up. Um, and it was going to go virtual instead of being there. And I wanted to go there. I wanted to see the uh, surf capital of the world. And I wanted to go to the, <laughs> see the Berkeley Bird. Wall. Yeah, different mm-hmm. things, including the, Ber- the uh, Berkeley Wall, which is kind of famous, an ancient wall that goes from supposedly Oakland up to the Canadian border. Nobody knows mm-hmm. who built it. However, it actually starts in Santa Cruz, I found out. And I'm like, wow, right? how far from the university is that? And I was going to go up to Mount Shasta, but... Uh, they canceled the uh, beat in person there in Santa Cruz. So they made it a virtual. And that week, uh, the uh, Holzer files from the Travel Channel came in and filmed all week. So everything got kind of turned upside down. I haven't mm-hmm. made it out there yet. So that's on my uh, bucket list to get out there and see some of these features on the West Coast, too. So well, it might nice be. nice to see how many you can try together. Definitely, yeah. So we're going to try to get out there and see that. But we had no idea when we started in the 1950s that this was so wide range, you know, some of the features. Were the people on the West Coast related to the people on the East Coast? Possibly by trade. You know, you trade not only goods, but you trade ideas, you know. So it's a possibility Mm -hmm. this thing made its way either from out there to here or vice versa. We're just not sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're in Alabama, too. And uh, Dr. Holstein from Jacksonville State University, we became familiar with him about three years ago. He's been working on his serpent walls since the 1970s, and we didn't know that. And he calls them uh, rattlesnake walls. But there are cons, there are, there are uh, monoliths, and there are the serpentine walls in the 40-square-mile area of, of uh, down in um, Alabama. And he's going to try to eventually meet up with him at the university and show us some of these. But he's aware of ours, too. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to find out more things, uh, not only in Canada, but in the United States, too, you know, that are there that we just are unaware of, you know. Uh, they keep popping well, up. I, I think you do have to work with like minds. Um, it's, it's something that's open. You know, I mean, I knew no people who are working on these sort of things. And it is fascinating. The information is definitely out there. But um, how can you go about carbon dating or just dating something like this um, scientifically? Like, do you have any assistance out there at all for this sort of thing? Yeah, they actually started uh, doing some carbon dating on the site back in 1966. And we ran 12 different carbon datings on the site. And a group called New England Antiquities Research Association, NERA, and they have a nice website, NERA.org, was formed by my dad in 1964 in our basement. <laughs> and oh, the group is still. Cool. Yeah, and my dad uh, started that group uh, in 64. There was a group before that called the Early Sites Foundation from 1954 to 1964. And he had two uh, professors from Yale, uh, from Dartmouth College. We had people from uh, the president of the Connecticut Archaeological Society, among other people in that group. But by 1963, a number of the uh, members had passed away and they dissolved the group by 1964. So my dad studied nearer in our basement. And the group is still going strong today with several hundred members. We even have um, one of the, uh, the pro- uh, we have state coordinators up in Canada, the provincial coordinators. Uh, Terry Duvall was in Nova Scotia. He's been on History Channel a bit. He was the first Canadian president of the group. And um, in Quebec, actually Montreal, uh, Gerard Leduc, a gentleman up there, was the coordinator. And he used to bring people east of Montreal to see some of the stone ruins up there, chambers and so forth, just east of Montreal. And Boston, Massachusetts, one of the big newspapers actually did a whole story. I'm looking at the paper going, oh, my God, that's, you know, that's what we're into. That's that's and that's Gerard, you know, doing the tours up there. I think he has passed on since, you know, since that happened. So um, but uh, 
So carbon dating is we've done 12, and they went from 66 to 1995. Mm -hmm. Most recently, we've been doing optically stimulated luminescence testing. And uh, Dr. Feathers, it's a test you can date dirt, or you can date rock. Okay, I'm like, and this is what? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, well, it's called OSL. And um, you can date dirt or rock, and you need certain minerals in it, like potassium feldspar, you need quartz, or you need uh, even a, a calcite. And they take the dirt or the rock samples, but they can't be exposed to the to the sun or outside, you know, light. Mm. So it's done in the greenhouse, I mean, in a uh, dark room environment, basically. And um, it's, so you build a structure and soil very slowly deposits, say, next to a wall or on the roof. Mm. And in the Oracle chamber, which I sent you pictures of, we found out uh, in 2020 when we heard this was going to be done at our site, you know, they actually asked us, we said, sure, you know. And it was University of Washington, uh, Dr. Feathers, and he came all out from there and he did four cores at our site. And he did 22 places from uh, our site all the way down to Virginia at some of these stone ruins. Wow. It used to take five years to process the uh, do the test processing, whatever they have to do. It used to take five. Now they're down to about two years. He had two Brookhaven National Laboratory women with him. And he had about 25 people up there on the team, geologists. We had NERA members. And um, we had a, uh, the LIDAR and we had the ground penetration radar at the time mapping mm. where the cores came from. It was a whole day. Uh, it was done on um, 9-11 in 2020 at our site. And after that, they spent the next, I guess, week or two going right down to Virginia taking other cores. Mm. So the Oracle Chamber roof was a good candidate. We found the soil depth was between 17 and 24 inches. We thought it was only like five or six inches of dirt on top of the chamber. And it was satisfactory. They took the cores and the dates came out just recently after two years uh, of 10 of the places. The other, the other 12 places, I think they still have to do the processing and uh, they're all pre colonial dates that are coming up from here to Virginia. And a couple of them are pre uh, Columbus. So pre Columbian dates. And all they tell you is when the dirt came in and covered the chamber. The chamber, as Dr. Feathers says, was there first. How much longer before the dirt is unknown. It could have been many, many centuries. The carbon dating, uh, the 12 we took, put the earliest part of the uh, main site back to 4,000 years before present. And we had two 3,000-year-old dates from the main site also. So we think construction mm. was around that time. So the dirt from the uh, OSL dates seems to be something that accumulates and it comes in from windblown particles and vegetation decay. It takes about 100 years to 125 years for an inch of soil to accumulate unless you have erosion washing it away. You know, so it's that's a New England rate. So 24 inches could be quite a few years of accumulation, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're excited about this new type of testing. I think it started at the University of Oxford back in the 1980s, but the like radiocarbon dating started in 1950, but it took many years to really perfect it. Some people agree with it today. Some people don't mm-hmm. agree with carbon dating. I, I, we get all sorts of visitors at our place and people even say, well, I don't know, but I, didn't, I heard carbon dating doesn't work, but they've been using it for almost over 70 years now, you know, and mm-hmm. it's pretty expensive. The OSL is $1,000 per core. And they took four wow. cores from our site. So you have to have funding. <laughs> you just yes. don't go around. I would love to date all the uh, serpentine walls, you know, because some of oh. them are sitting on bedrock, but some oh, of them yes. are sitting with an accumulation of soil. And oh. one of them actually was tested that day. 
And the date was that it was already sitting there at 1400 AD. So it wasn't some crazy farmer building it two or three or 400 no. years ago. It no. goes back before Columbus. And how much earlier than that? I don't know how long it took for that dirt to accumulate next to the wall where they got it. But it was the wall's older than that, as far as you know, we know, you know. So And how many of these do you have? As far as the serpentine walls? Yes. Fourteen. And See, that, that in itself, you're lucky <laughs> you find one wow. or two I on know, location. Yeah. Fourteen. And they go from about twenty roughly <laughs> twenty seven feet in length all the way up to the biggest one is the watch house. And I think I showed got some pictures, both LIDAR of that chamber and the mm -hmm. illumination inside of that on the equinox. So that's that wall we GPSed about five years ago. It uh, is 2,550 feet long. So it might be one of the <laughs> longest serpentine walls, you know, around. And it's yeah. twice as long as the Great Serpent Mountain in Ohio, which is really amazing. You know, it's it in is. Peebles, Ohio. That's, yeah, that's pretty. If people know about that, it's supposed to be on the uh, United Nations World Heritage Sites, you know. Yeah, it's uh, spectacular. And it's been, but I think COVID tied up everything and all that. But yeah. uh, it's, a, it's an amazing site. And it is an equinoxial solstice. With serpentines, like the size in size. So ours, uh, yeah, ours, like I say, the 14 vary from 27 feet all the way up to 2,550. So the biggest one would be about twice as large uh, in length as the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio. Okay. And I'm, and I'm familiar with a couple of the guys who've done some radio shows with uh, a couple of them that are involved with that out there. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeff Wilson and I've talked, uh, communicated with Ross Hamilton. They're really big out there. They're excited about ours. And when I was on the radio show a couple of years ago with Jeff Wilson, it turns out he had visited our site, you know, a number of years ago, way before the serpent walls were found. So he was quite fascinated by that because he's got the serpent mound out there that he's involved oh. with, you know. Oh, so yeah. So it's a great, great connection, you know. The fact that you've got 14. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, that, we might find a few. We, we think there are a couple more up there, but, you know, when you look at them, you're not 100. Well, none of this, we can't talk to the builders, so we can't be 100% sure on all of these. Right. But when you see them and they undulate and they, you know, they turn, they twist, they have tails, like pointed tails, and they have, yeah. you know, the heads are either boulders or stacked heads. And now North Stonington, Connecticut has eight, uh, they have 400 of them in one town. They, and they, and that's amazing. And one town, and I'm sure the residents down there probably don't even know about all of that. Hopefully they are. Hopefully they do. Yeah. So yeah. what what is the significance of these serpent mounts because obviously they're pretty spectacular yeah. and and yeah. um i mean architecturally speaking that's like they're unbelievable do you guys know what the significance of these all these mounds are well again we you know if we could talk to the builders i thought today is that draco the constellation might may have inspired in the northern hemisphere uh, may no, have inspired I totally people. knew it i knew it i knew it i know yeah <laughs> and they say that about the great serpent mound too you know and they think there's 94 of those serpent mounds going all the way out to Iowa. So when you look at the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio, which is amazing, and people, you know, it's just an amazing structure. People should, you know, look it up, Google it, whatever, or visit it. Um, but they go right out to Iowa. And there are, so there are other serpent mounds, but the serpent walls might be uh, even more because one town has 400, we have 14, you know, and they're yeah. in the Hudson Valley. There's 500 chambers in Putnam, Westchester, and um, um, what's the other county down there? But there's 500 structures down there, and uh, they go right into Monticello, Woodstock, and Bethel, New York. And some of these structures are chambers. Some of these are standing stones, and others are serpentine walls. So, right. and they're in Pennsylvania too. So, right. Uh, but maybe Draco, you know, possibly as above, so below kind of idea. 
I, um, I know that just for different reasons, but that's that's a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> well, there may be some other, you know, some, uh, well, the serpent represents so much, even Adam and Eve, you know, or yeah. St. Patty driving mm -hmm. out the serpent worship. But, but the uh, actually believed, you know, in um, that reptilians were very much like, you know, draconians. Uh, yeah, very yeah. much like yeah. subterranean beings on our planet long before yeah. we ever arrived here. So, you know, they worked with them, they revered them, they emulated them. You can see them you know, in South America. There's tons of, yeah, of different yeah. archaeology with respect to that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's an inspiration from that, too, you know. Um, but even just snakes. We have snakes in our area. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, on Halloween this year, we had a VIP tour with Scott Walters and Haley, and they came down from Nova Scotia to Washington. And while they were standing looking at a boulder that was found during a near, near field trip in 2018, one of the members found it when we were out there on the hilltop. And actually, they got away from my tour. I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if I should be insulted, but they, they walked away from my tour. Nice. And they found what looks like a, a pregnant female carving of a goddess on one of the stones. So it was a really good thing. And yeah. we were Scott, we showed uh, the tour people and while we're skating there, also we look down. There's like three snakes walking around. I mean, crawling around all the people, and because some of the people are kind of freaking out, you know. And it is, and there's a serpent. Well, just you know, down the yeah, down the trail, uh, you know, a short distance, you know. So we got the serpents up there too, the real ones, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I think it's all fascinating. I think you just go back to you know ancient times, and and of course you know going back because because these things are all over the bloody world. So yeah. they've always fascinated me why you can have an area that has over 400 and you have one property that's got like 14. Yeah. And, and how many in Ontario we've got like one that we know that we know of. Underground, even with the sites yeah. that you have found, you yeah. still don't know how extensive it, it could go past what you think. You could have a blocked off tunnel because earth has come down over the years i mean you're talking about it could be thousands of years for all we know mm -hmm. yeah and that's what we need uh people to come in and do more research uh ground penetration radar we've been using it it's not invasive you know so if you use that and you find something on the ground then you can decide whether you want to do a shovel test bit or a full-scale excavation or just to leave it alone you know but most of the time if you find something down deep you probably want to see it with your eyes too perhaps mm -hmm. recover some of the artifacts so we've been using a uh, ground penetration radar also since the 1990s uh, on mm -hmm. our site. And we need, we've only mapped a small, probably a couple thousand square feet. We need to definitely bring it back. And Doria, a woman that she's part Native American, she's been up uh, during 2020 and she was actually working with a LIDAR guy who was a friend of hers. And mm -hmm. he did 15 acres. It took 600 hours to process his data. And she's done a few thousand square feet and I've helped wow. her. She's coming back to do all the drains, the dozen drains that we have, some of them running up to 75 feet, as I may have mentioned. And she has a software now to take his images and blend it with her images. So we'll have 3D above and below the ground. That might be kind of wow. useful as a tool, I think, you know. That is so, really cool. That'd be pretty Absolutely. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great piece of technology. Um, it is, yeah. Any sort yeah. of assistance, let's say, from mm. you know, academia mm. in the area, archaeologists who um who want to put the funding into your site it's pretty spectacular it's a yeah. big area yeah that would be wonderful um 
we have individuals that come from different universities. The last one was a doctor from the University of Connecticut. He was up about five weeks ago with one of the nearer vice presidents who's now um, he retired from that position. He brought him up and the guy spent a couple hours with us walking around and he's mainstream. And generally he told me to my face, he goes, I'm a skeptic, but not necessarily uh, kind of a healthy skepticism, you know, ask the questions, you know, not closed minded skepticism. But the takeaway of that is he was very fascinated with our site. Mm -hmm. uh, his mind is open now. He's looking at the walls, the serpentine walls, the chambers. And he kept saying things to me that was very encouraging. And after I heard from uh, that gentleman that actually introduced him to our site, the guy that was a vice president of NARA, he lives down right near North Stonington too. And he showed him North Stonington. Uh, he said, yeah, he says he was impressed with your site. And, uh, and he wanted my name. I guess he didn't get my name when we were there. And he wanted my name. So uh, he wants to come back and look at the site. Mm. He uh, is getting ready to retire. He has a lot of pull, a lot of influence down there. And he knows some of the skeptical archaeologists too. And he is aware of the OSL dating and the carbon datings. Mm. And he actually mm. was hired by the state of Connecticut to look at Gunjiwap. Gunjiwap uh, is a site that's 250 acres of stone structures, a lot of the same features that we have at our site, including serpent walls, standing stones or monoliths, uh, and even inscriptions. Mm -hmm. And it has been carbon dated, and they just did some OSL work with Dr. Feathers on that site. And again, that came out pre-colonial on the dates. Wow. And that will be out there. And he actually has been working on that for 14 months now. And my friend that brought him up said he's had a change of heart. He's actually very interested in Gunjiwap. And then when he was at our site, my, my friend said, what do you think about this site? He goes, sophistication. He goes, the... Um, the amount of detail work that went into building this, particularly all the drains, all the structures in, yeah. uh, everything that he saw there, including the serpentine walls, and he didn't see all of them. Uh, he was kind of, he was just kind of blown away by that. So maybe mm -hmm. he'll be a help. He's kind of big on getting funding. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what it's going to take to do more testing, I think, you know, more research. I might have like a that. website I can send you and connect you with for that oh, as okay. well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. A comment by Rob is actually tomorrow night's guest. Hey, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Rob. He said, hello. I used to live in New Hampshire and visited America's Stonehenge. <laughs> They're very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. So there's tomorrow's guest, everybody. Oh, thank there you, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just before we go too much further from Tamara. Uh, yeah, hi, Tamara. Tamara asks, why do you think it has taken so long for these sites to be taken seriously? Well, that's also a great question. You know, uh, our site back in the 1930s, William Goodwin uh, was a first researcher. At that time at Harvard University, there was a great naval historian, Samuel Elliott Morrison. And actually, Mr. Goodwin and Mr. Morrison kind of butted heads. And Morrison basically <laughs> said, <laughs> no explorers before Columbus. And Goodwin thought possibly Viking when he first saw our site. And as he started cleaning and he hired a crew, and the crew was hired in 1937. The head was uh, from MIT, Roscoe Whitney. And as they cleaned the site up, it didn't really look like a Viking settlement. There were no saw sod houses, you know, they're all stone structures, you know, with stone roofs. And it just, he thought at that point, it could be something to do with the Irish called the monks coming over before the Vikings, going back, you know, hundreds of years before the Vikings. Mm -hmm. But uh, Samuel Morrison went by any of that. He said, yeah, there's nobody here before Columbus. That's it. He died in 1976. He wrote Admiral of the Ocean Sea about Columbus and the European discovery of America. Well written. And the gentleman's very, very, you know, uh, educated, very smart and everything. However, 
1960, they proved the Vikings made it to Newfoundland at Monzo Meadow. And he knew about that, but he said, well, it was, wasn't significant. It wasn't that important, but it kind of went against his no explorers before Columbus, you know, it kind of broke back. Yes, yes. But they now think the Greenlanders were coming into the, into Canada and possibly into the United States, or at least North America for about 400 years before they abandoned Greenland during the little ice age starting in the 14th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before them is a, uh, I read Fowley Moore's book, the great Canadian author, and mm-hmm. his book, West Viking, in 1965, he spent years putting that together. And when he put the book out in 65, he said, you know, there's something missing. There's artifacts, which are these stone columns or cairns up in Baffin Islands and other, some of these boat-shaped stone foundations up there and sod-shaped foundations, which he eventually explains what he thinks they were, are still up there today. And he goes... Somebody was here before the Vikings, way before the Vikings. And so if you read his book that came out 20, a little over 20 years ago, and I just read it again, I read it 20 years ago, The Far Fairies. He -hmm. talks about people coming over here before Christ from the old world. And um, it's a fascinating book. He's so Mm -hmm. well-researched. He spent from 65 up to 1999 putting that book together. Wow, and I, I don't know if he's still alive. He, he must be pretty old now if he's still alive, but it's a well-written book. If anybody wants to get into early visitations across the North Atlantic, uh, he goes over to Europe and everything, explains who the Albans were, you know. It just It's fascinating. We were just in Iceland, and uh, Pythias, a Greek uh, merchant from Marseille, France, actually made it up there in 306 B.C., 1,500 years before the Vikings were in Iceland. And wow. when I visited Iceland, they talk about it up there. I didn't even know if they'd mentioned it. At least they talked about it. <laughs> yeah. So before Christ, the, yeah, the Greek uh, merchant, he's famous. He's the one that associated the, the lunar cycle uh, or the daily cycle of the moon as the earth turns uh, with mm-hmm. tides. Nobody had actually put that together. You know, tides come up and go down, you know, the Bay of Fundy and all. But anyway, he actually associated those two. Plus, he, he did some stuff with navigation. He was a very, very smart individual. But that was mm-hmm. 1,500 years before the Vikings made it to Iceland, you know. So yeah, Europeans, yeah, they were up there already. Really fascinating. He thinks they made it to, to the North America. That's the other point. They went across uh, uh, Greenland, which he called, they called Krona, like the goddess or the god yeah. of time, Cronus, and he made it into the Baffin Islands, and the structures are still up there today. And he's got pictures of I them. It's just totally stuff that's amazing. That. Yeah, right in your yeah, Canada. Yeah. I totally believe that. That's that yeah. makes a lot of yeah. sense. Not surprising. They find ways. They were seafaring people. They and were. They, yeah. The cold, they were not overly affected by the cold. Anyone could have done it. They most certainly could have. Yeah, they're um, mighty sailors, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you considered maybe opening um, up the property to universities of archaeology and saying, hey, our site, I would be willing to let you bring your students in. They do it in, you know, Mexico, South America. Yeah, they do, yeah. The yeah. students go in and they go and work at certain pyramids and certain sites. It may be a great way just to get your site excavated and somebody's getting <laughs> getting an education <laughs> at the same time. You know? Yeah. So it oh, may be a good yeah. way to get funding yeah. as well. Well, that's a great point. And we are always open to researchers, you know, I like to see the proposal, you know, but we would welcome that, you know, we always have, you know, my dad always found it very difficult to get universities and schools. Individuals would come up, you know, from different universities, but the schools usually send their students around the world, you know, to other places. In fact, my friend, uh, I mentioned her, Haley, she actually was in school for archaeology and took physics and astrophysics and all that. And mm-hmm. she ended up in Mexico digging. Not in the United States. She ended up in Mexico. I know. For I, I had a friend who did the and, same typical, thing. You know? 
Yeah. Can I say wow. let's open the doors to like yeah. people out of Europe and Mexico? <laughs> Come on, hey, come up here. here. Come up here and dig. Yeah. Down there. Yeah. For sure. This I think these sites amazing. need to be looked at, protected, conserved, you know, and mm -hmm. researched. You know, they really do. Because mm -hmm. there's so many of them. Huh? Our late David Stuart Smith, as I mentioned, he died in 16, just as I was finding my first um, serpent walls. And he was fascinated by that because he spent almost 40 years with us. And he mm -hmm. walked out the woods and didn't know. But once he saw him and your eyes opened up and because we clear out some of the brush, it's like, how did we ever miss these things? You know, my dad died in 09 and so many others have died before that, that never knew that we had possibly serpent walls. And of course, that they go across the nation. But David said, I think we have an ancient lithic or stone building culture across the Northeast. And I and that was back, I think, in the 1980s, he told me. So he'd have to expand that, I think, across part of North America, probably. And he goes, they're undetected, they're ignored, they're ridiculed. Um, and most of the uh, public don't even know these things exist, you know. That's true. And that's still kind of true today. So we have an ancient yeah. stone building culture, and you were asking who they were. Yeah. All I can say is they're a stone building culture, and, that's, and they weren't farmers uh, in the sense of colonial farmers, you know. These are mm -hmm. maybe ancient people that did a little farming, but... But there are right. stone builders, yeah. 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 Um, have you ever found any remains or bones or anything like that? Yeah, uh, they have been. And usually in New England, a bone will dissolve in a couple hundred years because the soil is very acidic. Yeah. But in 1938, Goodwin found three bones that he, on the main site, and that's that one acre area, and he held, held on to them. And we had them uh, in our museum starting, I guess, 1958, all these mm -hmm. years. 1968, a woman, a teacher from one of the local schools uh, brought him to the Smithsonian down in Washington. And she brought a couple of different other bones, too, that came from our site, including the mm -hmm. Watch House. Uh, Dr. Lucy Hoygan, 1968, she was a physical anthropologist. She examined the three human bones, and they, she was kind of fascinated by them because there were some markings on them. And she said these markings had to be made while the person was still alive, like little cuts in them and everything. But she also found that they're very dense, denser than uh, she would expect for a human bone. Mm. And at the bottom end of her, I got the report, you know, and in fact, I have it on my screenshot on my phone. She says, basically, my feeling is he's a human. Well, radiocarbon dating wasn't done on them. They were found in 38 and you're exposed to the elements, you know, for 30, mm -hmm. over 30 years. And what I'm thinking, and I've talked to a friend who's done the Paracas skulls in South America, is mm -hmm. to, in fact, the, uh, the laboratory he uses right near, in, in Toronto, uh, is to uh, bring them up there, or maybe one of them, and have them test them for DNA, which, yeah. see if that would work, you know. I, I think that would be a great idea, because that would definitely yeah. give you some idea, at least, you know, the people, or a people, yeah. who yeah. were there at least for a period of time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Were they the builders? We may not know. But we might get uh, – because the bones are denser, so is that a different species? I don't really know. But she was concerned by that. But she goes there. But she also looked at bones from the watch house. We were talking about the watch house as being part of a 2,500. And those bones she looked at in her thought were there a bison, bison, or buffalo. So she showed them to one of her colleagues, a, a gentleman, and he was more of a specialist, I guess. He looked at them, and he goes, yeah, they're, they're bison, bison. She goes, yeah, but they're from New Hampshire. And he goes – they were in New Hampshire. He goes, it's the, um, I think they called it the, uh, the what they, they had a name for it, the country buffalo. No, they had another name, but there were, were buffalo up here. And mm -hmm. so he wasn't surprised by that at all. And they found right, right in the watch house, you know. Hmm. In the watch house, also a stone, 
stone, a uh, triangular flat piece of stone about an inch and a half high. It's on display in our museum, had a drill hole in it. And a piece of bone found right there too, about an inch long, had a drill hole in it. They were both found in the watch house. I thought, are these appendants for a necklace? Yeah. And for who and how old, we don't know. But they were mm. found inside that same chamber, you know, so maybe it's an offering. <laughs> I was going to just say, uh, if, this is, if you think this was a ceremonial site, maybe there would have been offerings done. That, that would make a lot of sense. It would. Yeah, definitely. It looks like that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, mm. And it's a wonder they, well, the, the stone will last pretty much forever, but the bone uh, being inside the chamber, including the bison bones, maybe they were left in there too as an offering, mm. you know? Yes. Uh, it's possible. We just don't really know, but that's what we have for bones up there. And then we have other bones that are found in, you know, over the years that are actually more recent animals, you know, that have passed right. away up from the woods, but not. These others are very interesting, though, especially those human right. bones, you know? Uh, right. Maybe we'll get the DNA or something. Sorry, how long would it take to do DNA analysis on something like that? Yeah, I got a, uh, my friend, he's, he lives in Malibu and he's got a place uh, in, in Oklahoma and he's been out doing filming on us. He's been in South America many times. Uh, I'm going to find out because he's done the process before and he showed me a picture yeah. of the laboratory. Uh, I used to fly into Toronto all the time. I probably could have uh, maybe got a, uh, Uber and going over there and talk to the people in person. I see so many overnights, so many near the uh, near your airport up there in different areas, different like the San Salmon Hotel. We, I don't know we stayed all over the place up there, but I thought I could have yeah. gone over there yeah. and talked to them. The, you airport, know? the airport strip is quite hot, um, hot in, in Toronto. <laughs> I was born and raised in Toronto, so yeah, 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 yeah. We did a lot there, so and that's where the uh, the laboratory is located, you know. And he sent the picture of it, so he's he's had. Uh, in fact, I I got to talk to him because he's going to try to come out this. He wants to take some samples off the oracle chamber roof where we got the cores and do some laboratory testing with those. He says, "Yeah, I'll come out there after the after New Year's." I said, "You know, that's going to be frozen until about May. You know, the ground because he, he's living in <laughs> California. You know, he thinks it's warm. I have to keep reminding him it's not. You know, it's not it's, like Malibu. It's the East Coast, so, yeah. So, it's the East no, Coast. No. Yeah, yeah so, it's freezing maybe. over here. Yeah, then, yeah. Then we get mud season. You know, so I said, "You don't want to yes. come here in mud season either." You know, so maybe the <laughs> Summer, yeah. so. <laughs> summer is perfect. Then he could come just in time for whale watching. <laughs> yeah. Go. Oh, yeah. So there you go. There yeah. You go. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. it. Definitely. Um, <laughs> all right. Tamara says, asks, so do you feel we have lost a lot of historical sites due to the idea that removing historical sites was a way that the history of the Americans was rewritten by our forefathers? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, um, I don't know if it's like an active thing and pop, maybe in some cases, possibly mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it's just like ignoring these sites, you know, but yes. I will say some of the archaeologists, some of the really mainstream ones that are really close minded, I guess, my opinion is they say, why are people wasting the time on these sites like our site and some of the other sites? Uh, some of the archaeologists, why are they wasting the time there when they should be looking at legitimate sites? And I'm like, oh, you know. I don't even know how to answer that, you know? And who are they to judge that? That's just crazy. It's this is the yeah. stuff that, that they want they want to see remain buried. This is this is what yeah. they want. They don't want this to, to surface. And they are because you know mm -hmm. we're, we're going climate change and, and and you know, let's face it, things are scaling back. We we've mm -hmm. got ice melting everywhere and they're finding yeah. all of these things and they yeah, don't want yeah. to. Uh, they don't want to talk about that. They're afraid well, they might have to yeah. rewrite history books. Oh, that's part <laughs> of it. They're, too. they're doing yeah. that with the cancel culture, anyways. 
No, exactly. Try it. Yeah, trying to. I yeah. I, there's, we've been in different things like forbidden history, you know, on a show mm-hmm. or in books too. Yes. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a prejudice too. You know, they maybe they don't want to know the actual past, but when you go to school and you get a master's or doctorate in history or prehistory, and then you learn mm. that you may have learned it incorrectly, and you're you know now teaching incorrectly or writing books. It's kind of a hot, like if I learned after all 42 years of flying that I was doing it all wrong, I guess I'd have to swallow this big pill. I don't know, you know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's a little bit, I mentioned, I mentioned Samuel A. Morrison, no explorers before Columbus, but John Wesley Powell at the Smithsonian in the late 1800s, he was uh, the head of the department of ethnology. Mm. He basically, uh, he basically said, you, if you find any pre-Columbian old world artifacts in the digs, you know, a lot of the mounds out west, they may have been a million yeah. at one time. If you find any of that, you have to basically disavow those. Um, so it's called the Powell Doctrine today. So basically, if, it's, if there's any evidence of ancient stuff here, and it could have some co- connection with the old world, for instance, whether across the Pacific or across the Atlantic, you have to basically not pay attention to it. So that kind of sets a little bit of the tone, too. And that well, was 130 I mean, years ago. Yeah, the Smithsonian are known for, you know, disposing of things and hiding mm-hmm. things like the bones of giants yeah. that a lot of the indigenous yeah. people have yeah. found. They used yeah. to dump those in the ocean. I heard that in the Potomac <laughs> River, too. I heard that, too. <laughs> so, you know what? Yeah. yeah. Note to self, I shouldn't say it, but uh, yeah, maybe not the museum you want to deal with if you're <laughs> finding something really significant right there. No, I'll leave that right there. Send it, the hate mail make... to our producer, not me. Sorry. It, yeah, send it to Joel Montalvo yeah, at UPRN. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do that to him all the time. Um, I, I have to wonder, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe every theory has some truth. Do they really, do they not know what's there or do they have documentation? You know, years after years, you collect things. There's journals, there's diaries. I mean, you go to the Vatican, we have Dante's Alighieri's works. Why wouldn't you have a journal of a civilization that was there before? Why wouldn't it be found? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't it be found? If you can build those tunnels, you can put papyrus together. So mm. <laughs> we're in a, it's in a Common forest, sense, right? Tell you. <laughs> Common sense and, you know, yes, a yes, little bit of mediumship. Of but anyways, <laughs> I just yeah. have to wonder if there is, you know, documentation and knowledge and, and a lot of facts stored somewhere. Mm. And, you know, and that's why they're, they're being the way that they're being, yeah. you know, uh, dismissive and... It's possible, yeah. yeah. For me, that's a fear of something, you know. Yeah, I know in Scott Walter's book, talking about the Templars coming over too, and that the Vatican has document from around 220 BC that was written about uh, people coming over across the ocean. Um, It's it's fascinating. I'm just reading the book right now about that. And there's a gentleman that actually contacted one of them, a senior, what do you call the, uh, he's like a priest over in the Vatican. He admitted that these documents exist and that it does show that apparently he goes, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to say yes or no, or, you know, deny or, you know, whatever, uh, prove yes. it, but he goes, they indicate that there were people coming across uh, across oh, yes. into the new world, you know, well before Columbus. I mean, going back to the time oh, yes. of Christ. Absolutely. And, it, they, and, and I got the letter from, you know, this in this book is actual letter from the, from the Vatican 
uh, Monsignor, you know, so I was, I was just reading that today going like, wow. And they say there's other pieces of evidence too, suggesting that oh, we knew that people coming over here well. Yeah. And across and the Pacific, is, yeah, and Atlantic, and Atlantic too, you know, both. Yeah. There has to be. I mean, we yeah. know there's ET civilization. We know all about that now, whether they're throwing disclosure or not. I mean, there's, there's constant evidence being out there. Who knows what else they're they're hiding and they right, don't want right. exposed. They've just you know? shown though that the Vikings were in South America. <laughs> like, I know. It's oh, just yeah. like 800 yeah. AD. Yeah. Kathleen Ann, Dr. Kathleen Ann Ball oh. found Templar oh. Caves in, in Brazil yeah. Yeah. Um, 200 years before Columbus. Before Columbus, yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, you know. <laughs> well, they say um, the war, the warrior, the you know, the warrior, the clouds, the Chacha Poya in Peru, I yes. think they had a big battle with the Inca, but they you're yes. ferocious fighters. You're very tall. Some are fair skinned with, you know, light colored hair. They mm. lost a battle because you're outnumbered by the Peruvians. And I think the mm. Peruvians were so respectful of them. They made them their honor gods for their own king after the battle was done, you know. Right. Uh, mm. And they might have, that might be some, you know, Viking there, you know, because mm -hmm. of the description, you know, the Chachapoya warriors in the clouds. So mm -hmm. that's another one of those possibilities, too, you know. Mm -hmm. no, uh, yeah, absolutely. In Verrazano, when he came in 1524 up to Outer Banks, you know, he was looking for that Northwest Passage. But I used to fly that whole Eastern Coast a lot, too. And I'd be looking down at Chesapeake Bay. He went past that. And it's a huge bay, you know, went past that. Then he went past the Delaware Bay into New York Harbor. And he spent a little time there. You know, they get the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. They do the marathon over. It's beautiful. Then he heads east, uh, southern coast of New England. He gets into Narragansett Bay. He's mm -hmm. met by a Native American whose name was Magnus, which sounds very Scandinavian. And he, <laughs> and he spends he spends quite a bit of time there, right near the Newport Tower and the Narragansett yeah. Stone and the Ad Hoc uh, In Hawk Stone. And yes. there's a couple other inscriptions there. And he said that uh, they were very, very kind to him. They were very. They, some were uh, very Native American in their appearance. Others had blue eyes. Some had green eyes. Some were, but quite tall. And Roger Williams, 90 years later, got there and he spent time with the Narragansett and he remarked on that too. So two different sources from mm -hmm. what I understand. And I'd like to see yeah. a little bit more about that before I'm 100% satisfied with that. But that's, I've read that in a lot of different uh, books uh, and in different publications, even in the Nera Journal, that group I mentioned. Sounds interesting. It sounds like, again, you know, uh, mm -hmm. old world visitors intermarrying with Native American and they yes. would be dressed like them, but there'd be some traits of the, you know, the European in them, too. hundred percent. Possibly. 100%. Yeah. Oh, some I, I completely believe that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And they say the word Narragansett could be a corruption of North Gang settlement to do with the Vikings, you know. But again, is that accurate? I don't know. It's just something I throw out there. I hope I'm not no, putting no, out no, bad no. information, you know. Yeah, but, no, no, no. Well, I mean, yeah. you're you're allowed to hypothesize, you know, everybody. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk to us. You mentioned at one point like um, the Oracle Chamber. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a larger structure still intact on the site. It runs north and south, as I mentioned, out of True North. Yeah. Uh, as you walk into it, you're kind of walking in. It runs north and south, but the entrance actually is kind of facing the west, and it's missing its roof lintel today. And oh, we have okay. photographs that a beautiful lintel over the roof. Uh, the picture's taken in 1920, and one was taken in 1900, according to Goodwin. It's in his book. 
he wrote in 1946 to Great, the Ireland and New England, one of his four books he wrote. And there's some beautiful pictures of the Oracle Chamber with its entrance still covered with, I believe, three roof slabs, including the wow. lintel. Those stones are gone today. Dave Stewart Smith looked at them starting in 1978. It's like, where are they? You know, who took them? But you walk into it and you turn left, you're heading north and you're looking down about a 27 foot tunnel and it's about seven feet tall. And uh, as you go down about halfway, there's a, you'll see an opening, it's horizontal. You'll see light coming through. It's a six foot tube. This tube goes through to the sacrificial table. And this mm -hmm. tube is about a foot by maybe, uh, you know, a foot. It's kind of rectangular shape more though. And it goes six feet. And when Goodwin first worked on the site, both ends of that tube had stone plugs concealing it. They didn't know what was there when the first workers got in there. And one of them moved the rock, it came out and you see this, you know, this hole in the wall. And then they went to the other side and they pulled out the other stone plug. And we have this horizontal tube, which we call the Oracle tube or speaking tube today. And as you're standing below it, the bedrock had been removed, except right beneath it, they left a piece of bedrock still intact connected to the bedrock, it's about, a, about 10 inches above the uh, floor now, and you stand there and somebody around five, five and a half feet tall can stand there and speak into the tube. And if you go outside by the sacrificial table, there's a ramp, and the ramp is on the west side of the table. And if you stand there, it could hold probably 30, 40 people. You're looking down at this table. When somebody speaks, the voice comes out underneath the table, kind of an acoustical thing. Right. Um, and just three years ago, during some vandalism, we found that that end of the tube, six feet from the oracle chamber where it goes in, is actually flared, kind of like a clarinet or a trumpet end. So it actually widens out. Mm -hmm. So when the sound goes through it, it helps to amplify it a little bit. And so when I was in uh, Malta uh, 25 years ago, uh, we, we spent about a week over there and I saw holes in the walls in some of the chambers. And I mentioned to the guide, I said, what do they, what do they think they were used for? He goes, oh, somebody would talk through those. It was like an Oracle. I says, we got something like that in New Hampshire, you know, and he was ready. He was really into that. You know, I kind of described it and I think we had a brochure and showed him what it looked like. Mm -hmm. So we think um, during a ceremony, perhaps a wedding, a death, perhaps the solstice equinox, people would stand up there, watch a ceremony on the table and hear this voice coming out and thinking mm -hmm. it was a god, a spirit, or somebody speaking to him. And right. you can do it today. You can actually go there and we can do that for you today. You know, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So yes. there's no other function for it. You know, it'd be, right. it's not a smokestack or anything. We do have a chimney at the far end. As you continue past that, mm -hmm. there's a hole in the roof. And until 1959, there were two stone louvers. And we have the photographs. I don't know if I sent that to you. Two stone louvers that could be adjusted to adjust a draft if it was used for a fire. And uh, somebody stole them in 1959, I think the second year we were open. So we don't longer have those louvers. Mm -hmm. uh, there's five closets in that beautifully made closets inside the Oracle Chamber. There's a, a bench seat across from one of them. It's carved right into this rock and there's no tool marks, no metal tool marks. They took a 90 degree cut in the rock and you can put about three people sitting there and you're looking into this beautiful uh, stone closet, if you will. And we think maybe they put something in there like an offering and there's four other closets in there too. Mm. Um, there's two carvings, one of a deer, but it really looks like an Ibex. And if you look at the uh, Iberian Ibex mm -hmm. in Western Europe, there are different types of Ibexes and it looks like the Iberian Ibex, which is where Dr. Barry fell from Harvard university thinks these people came from. 
because of the inscriptions that were found at our site, very controversial. They were found, some of them go back to the time of Mr. Goodwin, others were found in the 60s. He visited us in 1975. He was at Harvard University, uh, and he was the head of the Epigraphic Society, a group of like 1,200 people that studied ancient scripts across North and South America, originally from New Zealand, went to school in Edinburgh, Scotland, and then he came to the States. And um, he wrote America BC in 1976, Bronze Age America after that, and Saga America. So he wrote three books and did a lot of publishing, and he died mm -hmm. in 1994. Wow. And he said the uh, three types of script he found at our site, as well as all over the Northeast, is Libyan, Celtic, and Phoenician. He said mm. they came out of Spain, uh, because we know the Phoenicians originated possibly in the, the Persian Gulf, and then they were in the... Mm. the uh, they're in the Middle East, they're at the Phoenician coast, Syria, you know, Lebanon, mm -hmm. and uh, part of Israel, the Golan Heights, I thought that area in there, and Tyre, and Lybos, and Beirut are all Phoenician cities, and they went across the Mediterranean, sitting up 50 other cities for trade, and then they ended up in Spain and Portugal, um, and they made it to the British Isles, into, uh, into Scandinavia too, and then they set yeah. up 50 trading colonies on the coast of Africa, Hano, I think it was seven trading col uh, colonies mm -hmm. they set up. He feels they made, they launched off of uh, Spain and Portugal, and uh, they came to the state just like where Columbus launched from. And that's Siberia, and that's what this inscription looks like. The deer carving really doesn't have the antlers of a deer. It looks like the horns or whatever on the, uh, on the ibex, and you can Google that. You know, it's like, wow, yeah. it looks just like that, you know. The yeah. other carving they found in 1967 near the exit, it was a window, not really an exit. Uh, it's because of vandal because of wear and tear and vandals and stuff, the uh, the hole got bigger and they made an exit out of it. It was a window. We think the sunlight would come in there and illuminate that ibex carving. Actually, we got to hmm. we got to try that. We got to we got to actually go up there and try it. Part of the problem is still on the, too many trees blocking the sun coming in from that direction. We just did a complete forestry thing over two winters with a mm -hmm. licensed forester, and we got to see the watch house illumination for the first time. Before wow. 2020, you could never see it. There was just a dense forest there. You couldn't see yes. it. You know? Yes. So this the Oracle Tomb is interesting. It was named because of the Oracle Tomb. It has two underground drains. One of them runs 45 feet just to keep the structure dry, and um, and then it has a you know it has a bed underneath that Oracle Tomb. If you are standing there and look down by your knees, it's a big big hole. It was man made. It goes right to your left, eight feet, and it has a window. You can actually lay in there, and you could be looking out this window. I have I have no idea. It doesn't look like a closet. It looks like somebody could actually lay in there. So, if that is a ceremonial site, did a priest or shaman or somebody else, you know, stay in there during the ceremonies? It's it raises a lot of questions. Of what, what would they be looking at? The well, the window only looks into the into the chamber. It's like you oh. could actually observe anything coming or going. Okay. I think the structure. And, you know, if you stand above the sacrificial table, you can't see the oracle chamber. It right. blends into, to the left, there's actually a natural ridge of bedrock. They call it a sheet back. It's like right. a ridge. They artificially continue that on the roof of the oracle chamber. And then when you're standing up there, like there's a chamber down there. Right. <laughs> so I think like the Wizard of Oz, if somebody was in there talking, people above would be like, oh, my God, you know, it's a spirit or somebody, possibly, kind of like the Wizard of Austin. Don't pay attention to the guy behind the curtain, you know. I mean, up for a farm, this makes no sense when you look at that chamber. It makes no sense at all. Um, but it's, you know, it's an amazing structure. 
in the uh, 1800s, some of the site was taken away. Some of it was taken away for the stones for other building purposes. So right. maybe 25 or 30 percent or something like that of the site's missing. So you see the foundations of other structures, you know, where there are more oracle chamber structures. There's one area I think there was probably a similar structure. You can see the remains, but the roof and part of the walls are gone today. So there may have been another structure somewhat like the oracle chamber just to the south of it, you know. Uh, right. So it's unfortunate it's not there today. Oh. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, huh? that's fascinating. It's just, there's just so much, you know, to piece it all together. With, I mean, you'd almost need information from other spots. You do, you really do. You gotta, yeah, you know, look at other sites too. You know, no, absolutely. Um, but them, yeah. again, yeah. the one thing that you say you know, scaling back all the trees, it just makes me realize because there's another site I'm familiar with where things like this are starting to surface. They think it's one thing and it may be partially, but it's starting to look mm -hmm. like if they uncovered it, they would not be far off of what oh, yeah. your area is like. Yeah. I'll, Interesting. I can, Interesting. I'll send you that information. It yeah. may be good to you guys to collaborate or something because I'm thinking, you know, you could probably give each other answers. Is that just based on the people that are kind of working it over there as well? Um, but the constellations is something that interests me because that seems to be something that the ancients would do. They would build on power spots. Um, so I'll, I'll back up one minute and let's talk about your site being a power spot. Stargate, Gateway, you know, the ancients always built these sort of monuments in places that they believed were power spots. And that usually did align with the constellations in many cases. Do you think you fall under that? It's possible. I mean, um, uh, there's different areas. I'm not an expert in that area, but I will say that there is a earthquake it's a joint. It's another part of the earthquake fault line called the Clinton-Newbury fault line. It goes from uh, Newbury, Massachusetts, which is to the east of us on the coast, all the way down to Clinton, Mass., which is southwest of us. And mm -hmm. the whole hilltop is bisected by this fault line. So that might be interesting. I know Machu Picchu has that, too, and about 700 of the stone circles in they're in, in Scotland, there's about 700, but in Wales going into England, there's about the same number. And my friend Maria Wheatley's big on power, power uh, on Ley lines. She's on uh, vortices. She's written about it. She's been on History Channel. Yeah. Uh, she, and I think you might have her as a guest eventually. You, I mean, she'll really get into connected. that. Yes. Oh, oh, she's wonderful. And that's <laughs> yes, her. That's really her yeah, expertise. And her dad visited us back 40 years ago. He was an archaeologist. She's an archaeologist. She lives right by Avebury. She's already done a little bit on our site uh, using maps and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she's been trying to get here for the last two years, but COVID uh, kind of messed it up. She didn't make it to else. <laughs> yeah, the I call it the dark ages, you know. She did make it to Chaco this year and she was in Malta recently, but she says your site is powerful. So when she talks about our site, or if you have her on a guest, get her more into the details of that. I, I will know. say we talked about ley line. She says you have to have five points to make a ley line according to what they have in Europe. She goes in the States, sometimes you just need two points, but she goes, with all the research they've been doing for decades and decades, she goes, really, you need five points. But I will say that. In uh, 2012, my son Kelsey was using Google Earth, and he went along the summer solstice sunrise alignment. He just took it across New England. He continued, and what they did in the 70s, they, they looked on hills around us to see if there was other structures, and there are. 
where they lined up with some of these astronomical alignments, and some seemed to be, but back in the 70s, you had to actually go over there and look at these hills on private property. It was difficult. Today with Google Earth, you can it's much easier, yes. you know? So he took Google Earth around the world, and he ended up over in England, and he's been to Stonehenge a couple times with us. You know, we took him over there, and uh, he said, gee, this looks pretty close to Stonehenge. And as he changed the scale, he blew it up, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden Stonehenge appears. So that line that goes from this, the astronomical center it goes through a stone circle, then it goes through a stone monolith, which is a summer solstice sunrise monolith. And the monolith is actually shaped with an asymmetric top. And when we saw that, because the stone's always been there, and when we cleared it out starting in the 70s, so that's kind of funny. Most of our monoliths have a point in the center, kind of like an arrowhead. But, you mm -hmm. know, most, but not all. But when we opened up the clearing to the horizon, all of a sudden we could see the horizon about five or six miles distance. There's uh, two hills that intersect, and they intersect the same shape as the top of that rock. So the rock kind of fits into the notch. And in mm -hmm. Europe, they call those horizon features. You'll have the notch or a little hump, the stone you call your foresight, then you have your backsight, kind of like a gun sight. Then you watch your object rise or set over these. So we we're quite amazed about 50 years ago to clear that out finally and see that. So my son took that line right across that whole thing, you know, the, the center, the uh, stone circle, which is where we think you stood, the stone itself, the far distant notch, and he went across to England and, and he blew it up and that line goes right through the center of one of the trilithons at Stonehenge, which is kind of neat. It's like, if that's a coincidence, I'm like, mm -hmm. wow, you know, and I said, it was just after my dad died, you know, and I like, I wish you could see that because you've been looking at that stone for decades. We never knew that if you had x-ray vision like Superman, after that, my son taught me how to use Google Earth a little bit. And I took, and if anybody can do this and are good at this, please do it and tell us if we have any errors, you know, if we're making mistakes. But True South, and not Magnetic, but True South goes through Machu Picchu. The mm -hmm. winter solstice sunset goes through the moon pyramid at Tiwatiwakan, which we've been to. Mm -hmm. uh, not the sun pyramid, but the moon pyramid. Yes. The equinox sunrise goes through Pablo Benito at Chaco Canyon. Again, is this a coincidence? I don't know. But the sunrise goes through the pyramids on the Canary Islands, which I didn't even know existed. We took it over there, and it goes right through the truncated pyramids. And the August 1st sunrise goes to the Great Pyramid of Cheops. So it's something that some people are interested in. Others will say, eh, it could be coincidental. But there's a lot of coincidences there, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. But there are ley lines on our hill. And I have a friend that was the one that set up the Santa Cruz West Coast Bowsers thing. And she's mm -hmm. done a lot on our site. She goes, it is a – you have – and I've tried the sticks myself. She says, uh, I'm pretty good at it. I don't know. But uh, right, right. my dad, my dad found the first well at our site using a dowsing rod back in 1958. You know, I didn't, know he, I didn't even know he was into that you know, until me years yeah. later. Yeah, so, I'm not surprised. I think it's, yeah. it's fabulous, you know. Um, so um, before we continue, why don't we do, Amelia, do you want to just do a station ID right now? Um, you know, yeah, not a, a problem. Do that, yeah. yeah. And just just to answer Ron Watson, yes, we can see your comments and questions. <laughs> so go ahead, fire away. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And There's a lot of them. That's why. <laughs> you are listening to the Outer Realm with Michelle DeRoche and Amelia Pisano. Comes to you live from the beautiful city of New Orleans on 105.3 and 107.7 FM radio tonight. We have, for the first time, Dennis Stone with us, and we are discussing America's Stonehenge. 
If you missed it, don't worry. You can stream or listen to our archives on the platform you normally use. And a big shout out and thank you to the amazing people at Folgers Coffee for fully sponsoring our show from day one. And we thank you for your continued support. Um, and also a big, huge shout out and thank you for our intro and outro to Dr. Snick, the sonic surgeon, Justin Snicker, award-winning composer and musician. You can find his music on Amazon and Bandcamp and find him on Facebook and Instagram. Speaking of which, if you are watching us right now on our Facebook page or you are watching us on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button and our like button as well. Just say. I was a little disconnected because that you caught me off guard because that's early. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I know that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I just figured we would do it because then we can just move on to, to yeah. some other stuff. Um, curiosity, because you mentioned that you had the Holzer files filming there, and I know you've got oh, cool. um, different people, paranormal investigators. We've talked about that coming on to the site. Um, so let, let's just kind of slip into something on a little bit more of the metaphysical side. Um, is the site haunted? Like, why? I'm sorry, what was the question? Uh, why is the site haunted? Like, all these people are oh. coming forth. Like, Holzer, yeah. like, Alexandra yeah. as a friend. She's been on the show two or three times. And I mean, if she's going there, I know there's got to be something to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, people have been doing different types of psychic research since the 1960s. Uh, I think I mentioned yeah. to you, somebody had taken a crystal, sent it out to California and they did a reading on it. I, there's a name for that. It's psychokinetic. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. I read, yeah. You can read. And then they fortunately sent the crystal came out of the uh, upper well. The upper well actually is in the main site and it's uh, 23 feet deep. But in the 1960s, it was full of muck and debris. And my, uh, somebody started cleaning it in 1961. We got the report on that. And my dad right. finished it in 1961. In 63, my dad got down there. When he got to the bottom of it, it gets very wide. And somebody actually quarried the last five feet of it through solid bedrock and found wow. a whole bunch of quartz crystals down there. You know, so, Oh, my God. I was so just going to say, did you find crystals? Yeah. Sorry. yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't want to get sorry. Well, the crystal thing's interesting. Um, but it doesn't seem to be a well for water. There's no vein of water. The only water that goes into there is from snow melt and uh, when it rains. And then the water goes through, there's a wall between that and what we call the paddy area. I think originally it was a courtyard. And if the water gets up to a certain point, just a few feet, it actually floods out the whole area. Then it goes into another one of these underground man-made drains and you know it helps to keep it dry, but it's not really a well for water. Uh, we think it is as a mine shaft to extract the quartz crystals. And we're not sh still sure about that. But my dad wrote that up in the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, their newsletter in 1963. And we got that report, too. And mm -hmm. then somebody did the uh, reading on it in California. And I have that report. I wish I had it here to tell you the, the details of what they yeah, what they felt. I, I just don't have it in front of me at the moment. No, that's OK. That's OK. I yeah, just thought I'd maybe, ask. Yeah, it is interesting. And then uh, Holzer first visited us in 1970 and he kept coming almost every year wow. uh, through the 70s and in 76 he was up and he actually did Lennon Nimoy's In Search of the second episode he produced and directed that oh, and I was there during that and I actually thought he forgot he actually did that you know at that time you know yes. Um, yes. and then um, he passed away in 09 like my dad did uh, and then the Holzer files came out uh, yeah. two years ago and yeah. they came up and filmed us for that um, back in 74 that particular year he brought in um and july 12th of 74 he brought in um 
uh, Ingrid Beckman. I guess she was kind of getting her start in the paranormal at the time. Yes. And I don't know if she's passed away, but in 74, I remember she was pretty young at the time. And it's in his book, 1992 book that Hans wrote called Long Before Columbus. And there's uh, Ingrid in there. And it was a summer yeah, months. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And her in her um, experience is all recorded. Hans used, I think, camera. He used a recorder, and then he put it into the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, November twelfth, and the twelfth for some reason, um, uh, he brought in Ethel. And I always school it's Ethel, Ethel Johnson Myers. You yes. know Ethel Myers. Yes, yeah. yes. I always yeah. get the names backwards, Johnson, <laughs> but it's Ethel, and she did a similar reading. And because she was coming up somehow or other, and we didn't have the internet back then, Betty Hill found out. Maybe it was in the local papers that Hans was bringing in this psychic. Betty Hill lived uh, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the time, about 30 miles away, and she heard about this. She came over, and we got to meet her for the first time. Very nice. And and I guess most of your listeners know about the Betty and Bonnie Hill experience, you know, and and the movie that came out, you know. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think Estelle Parsons played Betty, and uh, James Earl Jones played Barney, and it was a pretty good movie. I just watched part of it Pretty yeah. cool. Uh, I think it was an NBC special too. Yeah, um, it was. It was pretty well done. Absolutely. I think so. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, what an experience they had going into Canada and coming back on a vacation, I know, and then surprise. all, I know. all <laughs> sp- bad stuff happened. So <laughs> that just not, don't go to Canada. Come back and have us <laughs> the bad stuff. Watch the boring. Be aware of the boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a gift that keeps on giving. Right? <laughs> so, um, we'll stay away from that. <laughs> but uh, it was an, it's an amazing thing that they did and you know yeah. uh, so she came over to meet uh hans of course and then she wanted a reading by ethel and she did and what i and i was there during that you know i was like 20 well, i would have been 20 years old and what i don't know and i asked uh, hans holzer i've stayed in touch with his daughter since they came yeah. up two years ago to film because she came up it was the first time she, she actually came up on a show alexandra yeah. Yeah. and she, i just talked to her uh, two days ago but what i don't know is if hans where that report is i would love to read the reading by Ethel over Betty Hill. What did she, you know, what was oh, that? That, was that would be interesting. All of this stuff. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that would interest, I think, myself among yourself and probably your listeners yeah. too to I see should, what they're I reading. If Alexander wants to dig it up and come on the show and bring you one and just kind of collaborate on that. I that can uh, mention it to her. Yeah. She's really wonderful. And she's in oh, New York she City. And Carrying yeah, on yeah she's been work. on the show three times. Yeah, she's she's definitely- oh, she has. Oh, okay. So you know. Yeah. Oh, Give her a call. call. <laughs> that's why, yeah. why Michelle suggested it because we're actually friends. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, that's great. She but does want to come back many. and do another thing at our site, you know, eventually, you know. Yeah. Um, but she's got like five or six kids, so she's very, very busy. Yeah, too. She is carrying on dad's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're keeping yeah, her busy. She's wonderful. Yeah. I like her. Yeah, she's just – I never met her as a kid. It was sister who's older and her – uh, didn't come up, and that was part of the show too. Is par- apparently Hans kept them away from our place, but Hans came all you know many, many, many times up to our site, and then that book came out in '92, and um, yeah. and that's where you'll see another Nancy Abel was another psychic that came. He brought her, I think, in '75, I think. But what were uh, they picking up? Were they picking up on on um, <sighs> past civilizations, on spirit yeah. people, on extraterrestrial. If Hans was there, this guy yeah. was something very interesting yeah. there for him. I would suggest the book back. is available. Yeah, if you get the book, you can go into it. I can't remember all the different, I'd probably mix yeah. them up because he has, I think, four different psychics in there. 
Uh, three of them mainly, but he mentioned some other, you know, and uh, in the book. So if you get the book, you can see exactly what he yeah. put down there. I'll check because um, I have all his books yeah. on um, yeah. digital. Yeah. yeah, long before Columbus. Yeah, two, 1992, Columbus's 500th year anniversary. So that's when the book look. came out. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, I don't know the publisher. Checking out. Yeah. Um, okay, we've got we've got a comment. We're going to come up to this one. Uh, Natalie, Natalie Closon. Hi, Natalie. Um, she says, I am guessing you've used D-Stretch. It's a tool for rock art researchers who wish to enhance images of pictographs, not an expensive program in case you haven't used it. I haven't. No, I don't think I don't think we have used that at all. It's not familiar to me. I'd like to learn more about it. I do I'm know it's Stonehenge is laser scanning. And that the guy with the LIDAR says, if you want to get that device, it's $150,000. She may be doing something totally different, but laser wow. scanning, they picked up things at Stonehenge that you can't see with your eyes that are inscriptions. You oh, know? yes. Uh, yes. So maybe that's, that's kind of one that one. Yeah, we're open to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. And Tamara asks yeah. if yeah. you have any magnetic anomalies at your site. We do. We get a lot of... Uh, well, every time they come up to film us, whether it's ancient aliens hit us with a drone and the whole, everybody's having problems with the batteries dying up there, the GPS mm -hmm. not aligning. Uh, the one guy was doing infrared. Uh, he has a $13,000 drone. He does movies. He does all sorts of uh, solar panel inspections, but he came up and he used his thermal imaging camera on our site. Right. And it was a $13,000 unit. And when he tried to launch it the last time, he was going to show it to the LIDAR gentleman it would not get off the ground. And I guess it's something to do with the airspace is A, B, C, D, airspace. And it would not let him get up. He was so mad and so frustrated. It was a brand new, you know, very expensive drone. But he has some thermal imaging. Those images are really interesting. You know, they go down to about 14 yeah. inches. Um, but, uh, you know, we're open to any kind of, you know, research that people will write a little proposal. And if it's not going to destroy the site, you know, or harm it in any way. We're definitely, yeah. we're definitely open. What she said sounds really interesting to us. I'm yeah, sure there's other inscriptions we yeah. can't even see. That we've yes. been thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What, what are we missing with our eyes, you know? So um, that would be How great. How much is yeah. still underground? Well, well, they've excavated one acre since 1937, if we took all the shovel test pit, we call them STPs and all the excavations for 85 years, about mm -hmm. one acre out of a hundred and about six acres have been excavated. So that's not even like a percent, you know? No, uh, oh, that's you know, very, too. very small, um, small percentage yeah, of what yeah. you have. So exactly. yeah. what are you looking to do next with the site? I mean, aside from, you know, keep going. Yeah, I mean, we want to, you know, use the latest technologies. I think we want to do some more OSL dating, too, because mm -hmm. we have thousands and thousands of feet of stone walls. Some of them are serpentine walls. Others are walls that we don't think are colonial. Mm -hmm. uh, and test these, you know, uh, if we can do more. But it's $1,000 per sample, and you have to wait two, about two years to get the results yeah, back. Yeah, that's really hard. That's really which hard. is kind of tough, yeah. And uh the uh, by the way, those ten sites that they did do, Doctor Feathers, uh, he put it out for peer review in the. Um, it's called the Quaternary Geochronological Journal. The editors in Germany, they have thirty-three uh, editors around the world, including I think six in the United States. And what they do is they 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 read the article, they look at his data, and they put out a peer review on it. And mm -hmm. that journal basically is all about different ancient, I mean, date, dating techniques, you know, spin right. resonance, carbon dating, uh, all mm -hmm. sorts of different types of, including OSL and mm -hmm. SL, which is surface illumination, which is another one they can do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think we ought to do more of that because the dates are starting to show that the Patty family had nothing to do with the construction. And it's not a colonial site, as many of the mainstream have always written it off as some crazy farmer, or bootlegger, bank robber, mail robber they, they assigned to this guy, which is basically libelous or slanderous. You know, the guy wasn't oh, any yeah. of these things. Yeah. And they yeah. said it, he and his six husky sons built the whole site. He actually had two sons. One son died in Boston at 17 years old for some reason. The other one, his name was Seth, and he survived into adulthood. And he had five daughters. Maybe the daughters were all husky. I don't know. But he said the husky sons built the site. It doesn't yes. look like a farm. And why would they waste their time? They had to make a living, you know. And he was that, a shoemaker yeah, by trade. I don't think trade, they would you know? waste their time with that. I, no, I know. Like you say, you have to live. Your land is what sustained you. So you're yeah. going to yeah. use it to sustain you. Yeah. Exactly. You, you know, I yeah. can't I can't see going to all that trouble. No matter how <laughs> husky your girls are. <laughs> There we go. Yeah. Amelia, can we get this? This is a, what something else Natalie's saying. Yep. Uh, Natalie said, G-Stretch can bring out faint pictographs that are invisible to the naked eye. It works yeah. on a digital camera images. No special filters or lighting are needed. So is that like an app program or? Wow. Natalie, if you if you wouldn't mind, um, is, is that... Yeah an app or a program that is downloaded to your phone or to uh a, yeah, a, 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 because, on it. yeah it'd be great is it oh, that'd be app, yeah yeah is it a computer program is it a, a phone app how does it work mm-hmm. um peg hi peg picnic asks how does a compass react differently at this site yeah, there is there is that, but we have had that definitely. There's one one problem is that chain link fence that goes around the site covering that one acre. But also, even if you get away from that, there seems to be some magnetic anomalies. And one of the gentlemen that uh, he was in, he was actually uh, doing our 12 minute video that we have. You can see that on our um, website. It's a 12 minute introductory film, and he did some ads for us. He used to work for an ABC affiliate uh, in New Hampshire, and he had a uh, and his background was basically engineering. He went into school for engineering. And when he right. was using his drone and he was using, and this is a d- different gentleman from the guy with the uh, with the thermal imaging. And he was just laughing about it. He goes, my batteries are dying. I bring all these batteries are charged up. They're all dead now. My drone <laughs> isn't, my drone battery died. He had audio, his audio was separate with the battery and that died. And he just says, there's gotta be a reason for this. But he says, I think it's prosaic. Maybe it's something to do with the minerals in the ground. He goes, but he didn't know. He goes, the other side is there's something else going on here. And I can't, you know, something maybe more supernatural because I'm going to go with the down to earth first, he said. And maybe you have different minerals in the ground. You know, you have the quartz, you know, feldspar, mica we have there. Is there something else? So he was really trying to figure it out. It really puzzled. You can see he was really stretching. But he had an engineering background, you know, and then he went into the whole media thing, you know. And it puzzled him. And we've had other people say the same thing, whether it was ancient aliens up having some issue or, you know, the holds of files. And we've had other people up there filming the Scott Walter show and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. uh, compasses do get screwed up and that causes problems with the, uh, the drones, you know, because they're, well, they use GPS yeah, basically, but even that was a problem too. Yes. Yeah. That became an issue too, you know. Mm-hmm. Drones are great, but if you lose one, holy cow. They filmed the show <laughs> here and the drone went right into the trees almost oh. for the house. We're like, beautiful beautiful equipment they're fascinating what they yes. do you know the bird's eye view and everything but you mm. get a kick of wind or a bird come at it it's your time i don't think there's insurance sure. for that <laughs> um 
do you get do you have concerns ever or have you had any issues with vandalism on such a big site like that you can't yeah we yeah uh, we have yeah yeah definitely and uh it's, it's some of it's juvenile over the years you know but the worst was uh in 2019 it happened uh in September, I think 28th, 29th at our mm -hmm. site. And somebody came up and they, they uh, first they tasted a joint the day before. And we know who it is. They did catch them eventually. And they were from New Jersey, actually. And um, they came back sometime during the hours of being closed. And I think it was Sunday morning. And uh, we had him on the cameras inside the building. We have everybody for security, you know, and we pretty mm -hmm. much picked out who it was. But he came back and he used a 14-inch diamond saw and he took it to the sacrificial table and he carved uh, several inches into it, I am Mark, which is his first name, across the top. We thought it was more biblical because he put a Christian cross, not an equilateral, but a Christian cross below it. And then he put down at the bottom, like, WWGA, WG1. And we had no idea what that meant. It was letters. And the letters are about a foot across. They were really big letters. And they went into the uh, stone up to six inches, and the table's about a foot thick. So really, structurally, it wasn't good that he, you no, know. No. Not only did he do that, but he took a some sort of a sledgehammer and he, this table is sitting on four legs and it, and it's uh, uh, part of it is actually into the Oracle chamber wall. So the Oracle chamber wall, then four legs that support this. And the table is about nine feet long by about just under six feet wide and about four and a half tons. So 9,000 pounds. He ended up knocking out two of the uh, legs on the North side of the table. The table is orientated East and West. And the whole table came collapsing down, and it actually caused damage to the Oracle tube, as I mentioned. And I mentioned doing a repair, we found that the whole thing was flayed out like a trumpet or clarinet or so forth. But he um, he did that, and that afternoon, my son, my son's pretty, it's amazing some of the stuff that kid comes up with. But he went on and he found out that it stood for where we go one, where we go all. So as part of what we think is he a follower. And they're probably really nice people in it, but I don't consider him a nice person, but he tried to do to our site. He tried mm -hmm. to destroy it, basically. And it's QAnon, you know, but either he's either part of it, or he thinks he's part of it, or maybe he's just a bad egg. I don't know. Yeah, he had some, he had some family uh, <laughs> tragedy that happened a few years earlier with his son, apparently. And uh, by oh, coming up to our site, he thought he could redeem himself or, or something would be good. But by destroying, trying to destroy our site, it caused us an enormous mm -hmm. amount of grief over the years. And we did repair the table. It took us two months to repair it, to get the thing back up and everything. But it's compromised forever. Our oh, assistant it's archaeologist. So unfair. It's so unfair. Yeah, to damage an innocent site like that. And that's happening across the nation. I have another friend. Uh, yeah. I mentioned Heather. Uh, yeah. And she's in Aruba right now, but she's seen damage down there. We've done a radio show together, both of us as guests, talking about vandalism about two years ago. You know, she's wonderful because even the national parks, people will take some of the petroglyphs, sell them on the black market. Other times you see people take and just scratch over them, you know, and that's Oh, it's that's terrible. It's great pain. Yeah. They did it to the yeah. Coliseum. Yeah, yeah, the Roman yeah. Coliseum for years was um, fenced yeah. off, so you couldn't touch it. And Somebody mm. was so upset about it, said, I paid all this money to come and see it. You don't mm. let me touch it. And she spray painted it oh. from the other side of the fence. And they both mm. ended up in jail. I'm like, you don't do that kind of crap. No, like, no. This, this is why like, I wanted to address it because it is a problem around the world. Yeah. You have these it is, yeah, that are, yeah. you know, crazy people. Yes. And I'm yeah. sorry that you fell yeah. into that. 
you know. So. Yeah, it's very, my dad, my dad probably rolling and, and everybody else that supported us, all the researchers over the years. So uh, that same day, actually in Sedona, the uh, Red Church, one of, that was attacked that same day. And in New Hampshire, one of the oldest Masonic temples, so I think they don't like the, the Mason, was uh, burnt to the ground. It's one of the oldest. And they never found out who did that, you know, it was the wow. same night. So we, it was like, whoa, what's going on here? And we felt, wow, we felt like, uh, you know, we're uh, in danger, you know, and our site was in danger for mm-hmm. more of this. So our assistant archaeologist, he, he went to school in Boulder, became a, he's basically a professional stonemason. He's the one that helped us put it together. He did a wonderful job and plus just making us feel better because we were feeling horrible about this. And then we hear mm-hmm. of other places being attacked, you know. This gentleman that did it actually wanted to take down the Bunker Hill Monument. And he has social pictures in front of that, you know, on Facebook. Uh, he went to uh, Washington, D.C., wanted the Washington Monument. I have no idea taken down. Then he wanted the Mount Rushmore crazy horse. So he had a whole thing. And when they arrested him in, 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 in New Jersey, his first comment was, this is a thing about Texas. So we think he did something in Texas, too. And then he was up in Nova Scotia. And a our detective in Salem, New Hampshire, was wonderful. He did such a great job because this is going to take time. The wheels of justice turn very slowly. And they yeah. did. He told us exactly what to expect. This guy was up in Nova Scotia. And I mentioned Scott and Haley did a tour from Nova Scotia, Knights Templar, that kind of thing. And they went to this thing called the, uh, it's been, a, it was on the ancient, it was on the uh, Oak Island show. And, it, and uh, the owners really didn't want it on there. They didn't have, it's a whole thing with that. Somebody went up there and when they got to the, this particular site in Southern Nova Scotia, ancient carvings and everything, mm-hmm. somebody had got in there and dug a six foot <laughs> tunnel. And they also stacking stones up against the carvings, causing some disturbance. And that was, uh, well, I guess two months ago. And I think this is something that this gentleman wanted to do, but I, I'm not sure who did it, you know? I'm like, yeah. oh my God, you know, it's still going on. This guy's still out there, by the way. They caught him and they found him incompetent to stand trial. So he's yeah, on he's he's I on the loose. He's, he's not remorseful every good. Yeah, he's just out there. That's terrible. But this is Three another example to, here. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah Peg says the, the guidestones are gone. Yeah. Oh yeah, Georgia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. love them or hate yeah. them at their monuments and they're gone. Yep. They're know, gone, yes. Go. Yep. We were scared oh. because yeah. They called that America Stonehenge too, American. And yeah. uh, on NBC News uh, with Lester, he's a great, I like that guy. But anyway, he was on talking about it. I'm like, he used our name instead of the American nickname, right. American Stone. <laughs> they call it America Stonehenge. So, you know, our, webs, our web hits went up and my wife goes, so we told our detective, you know, can you have a couple guys just check because we don't want to copycat no. again, you know? No, you don't need sure. that. Yeah. No, we don't need yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. It's been yeah. very stressful, you know, very, very oh, stressful. Oh, I believe I can't it. even imagine. I can't. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Natalie, yeah. Natalie says, from what I gather from the website, it's an app, but the better way to use it is on oh. onto the open source program image, Jay. So I'm guessing JPEG. Um, yeah. So the app for G-Stretch, the website, G-Stretch. Okay. G-Stretch. Is that with the E is an echo or a G? D, D like David. Yeah. D oh, David. Okay. Oh, okay. A D isn't David. Yeah, okay. There it is. It will always be here when you look at the archive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll go back to that. There for you. There we go. Perfect. Oh, so yeah. Good. So go to the oh. website. I imagine if you just Google it, you'll you'll get all kinds of information on it. I will check that out, and then we yeah. can start playing around with that up there at the different stones and see if anything comes up. That would be really 
even the ones we know about, like the deer calving, you know, at IBEX. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, just check that and see if there's anything else there too. I would, I would see oh. when I try to remember things, I play with them like D for destiny, destiny stretch, D stretch, and then it stays. I'm one of those people who studied that way in school. Right, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah. It helps to memorize it. It does. Excellent. Yeah. It does. Perfect. You know, just That's... something that you can relate yeah. to. I've got to write it down when I get off the show, so I don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> or I can go back and look at it, too. I know. I'll put it back up for you yeah. before we sign yeah. off. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Yeah, we appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Um, I am, I guess you guys have, you have a general idea how big everything is right now. Um, that overhead that you sent me, how many acres is that? Is that your full 110 acres, or is that... Yeah, that's about 110 acres. Yeah, you know what the lions radiate out from the out from the center. Yeah, yeah, because I'm looking at these sort of yeah. asterisks, sort of. It, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is is yeah. that like the whole property from overhead? Well, that's pretty much our property uh, exactly. I will say that next door to the east of us, uh, the family's owned the land for generations, and they just sold off about 20 acres uh, of the land away from us. And in that area, there were walls, including that that looked very similar to our wall patterns. And the gentleman that was the uh, vice president of NERA living in Connecticut was doing some, he's, he's great. He does photogrammetry, amazing pictures of these circuit walls uh, mm -hmm. all over New England, including our site. But he said, hey, Dennis, you know that next door neighbor? Uh, he goes, they got walls. And I said, you know what? I just saw those too. And because they're putting homes in there now. But the good thing is the homes have a couple, like three acres of land. So they're not, if it was high density homes, they would have just leveled the whole thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So these walls, although they get disturbed, they're still kind of intact with some holes where they had to put a driveway or the road through. Uh, but they look like our roads. So maybe our site does continue out further, you know, into our neighbor's property, you know? So uh, something that needs to be looked at more closely. That would be a surprise to your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they may or may not like that, you know, if they want no. to develop more of the property, you know, and, or hey, group. we got some, or we got Stonehenge here too, you know, which yeah. I, I don't know why, it probably does, you know, it could. <laughs> I, I'm just really excited for you um, to, for this journey, because I can't even imagine what's underneath everything. Like, people get really funky as well um, mm. with, with mounds, like the serpent mounds or the walls. Can you dig under there or into them? Mm. Like, is this considered something sacred? Because it really is. Mm. In some places like Ohio, they're yeah. really, really protective of that thing. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's private property. We were made a state historic site in 1971. My, my okay. dad was pushing for that a little bit. But they don't. You know, they don't own the place. And most of the state historic sites in New Hampshire, I think the number I heard one time, like 70% are on private property, the other estate, you know, like the Robert Frost on in Gary, my, my grandfather had him for a, for a teacher. But uh, that's state property and a state historic site in that case, right. you know, and I was, and we're open year round. Um, and uh, the designation was kind of good, you know, get us a little more recognition. Maybe, I don't know but about does protection. Does it hinder you? Does it hinder you? Ecologically? No, it does not. No. And even if we became like uh, on the National Register of Historic Sites mm. or places, you know, right. uh, we tried that 20 years ago with Dr. Winkler from Penn State. He was doing research on our site starting in 1997 until 2001 when he suddenly passed away. Right after retirement from Penn State, he was an 
Akio astronomer from 64 all the way up to uh, 1999, I think. And he was working on getting us on the National Register of Historic Places. You have to go through your state capital and then Washington, D.C. He goes, oh, my God, the paperwork, the red tape, you know, and all of this. Yeah. He goes, and then he passed away. And then it's we, no further work was done on that, you know. And I was flying right. at the airlines. My wife goes, you don't have time. You just fly and repair things right. when you come back home, fix all the broken stuff over there, you know. Right. Yeah, we <laughs> so, don't want our on, on the internet while we're flying. <laughs> 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 and I love to fly, so don't take that away from me. Don't put that away too No, no. I, I was on some flying. of these. It's funny when I was still flying until 20, uh, I retired in 2016 uh, with Mark Eddy, you know, it was great. He was getting me shows. And you have to have a certain legal time of rest, you know, very, very, the FAA is very strict about that. But I was uh, staying within the legal, you know, rest period, but I still did my radio shows at the hotel sometimes, you know, but I had to be careful right. because right. if some yeah. incident happened, they look back and said, wait a minute, you were on a radio at this time, you know, and that's all documented. And you had this incident and you didn't have your rest, you know, that would be a federal violation, you know, it that would, would be, uh, oh, be yeah. bad, you know, the company would get yeah. rid of me, number one. <laughs> so I had to be careful about that, but I love flying. I did it for a long time and I enjoyed, you know, aviation all that and then i enjoyed the rocks you know uh, and my yeah. co-pilots always enjoyed talking with me and i enjoyed talking with them about these sites you know and uh, we'd fly mm -hmm. into st louis and i'd say oh yeah there's cahokia i'd ask the controller one day the approach controller says hey where's cahokia and the controllers are so wonderful and it was quiet you're not supposed to bother them. it's busy it was very quiet and he goes yeah. what you're looking for the airport or for the mounds i said the mounds he goes well one o'clock in about five miles my co-pilot never knew anything about them they're like oh my god you know so yeah. it was we did that a lot we did that a lot over the years you know uh, so you got to see everything yeah. <laughs> did it mess with does it did it mess with the aircraft's compasses or anything like that because I, I haven't seen that no uh no, no fortunately fortunately no our gps or anything like that fortunately yeah. you know so uh, yeah. that's good that's always good you know, <laughs> don't get lost <laughs> it's can a I, good thing yeah don't yeah. want to be I, a, a plane that's oh. going renegade doesn't know where it's going <laughs> that's bad that's a bad day <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you something personal and funny? My my brother graduated. My brother and I are 18 years apart. Um, he graduated high school in 1969, the year I was born. And he wanted to be a pilot. He went to his counselor. And being an immigrant from Italy and everything, like he really had to work hard for his grades and everything. Do you know what they told him? It's just a fad. It's passing. It's only for the rich. This is how really? far back it went. Wow. Career was a fad. Yeah. yeah. They said, oh, no, crazy? it's just for the rich. Flying's not going to take no off. Kidding. At the time, I think it was just Pan Am was out there at the time. So <laughs> I just thought you'd find it funny because they discouraged him, huh? Wow. Yeah. I, I was yeah. just, shocked. I said, wow, I thought they were supposed to encourage you. They no, said, oh, you won't get work, yeah. but you know. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's fine. 1969. Wow. I got into it in 74 and I, and I went, I was trying to do the military, but my eyes weren't perfect vision uncorrected. Yeah. And I had, uh, I was uh, colorblind. My grandfather's completely colorblind. So I went to the air force for the uh, physical and everything in 1973, a year out of high school. And I said, well, everything is wonderful. You're your great. You passed the test. The oral was good. Uh, however, your eyes, you're not, 2020 uncorrected, you have some death perception problem mm -hmm. and you're colorblind. I'm like, what does that mean? They said, you'll never fly for the military ever. So I did it on my own, you know? Good for and, you. Yeah, because flying for yeah. the military isn't just flying, it's also shooting. Yeah. It's yeah. also armory, so yeah. Yeah, it's during Vietnam War too, it would have been a little dangerous to get into it, but um, no. <laughs> you know, I wanted to serve the country. But they said, nope, you can work on the ground, but you can't fly. So I decided just to do it on my own, you know. Yeah. And working at the museum and doing that, you know, and I, uh, 
I enjoyed both. I really did. Absolutely. You, know, you got to jump. see so many amazing places. Yeah. I know I was never on your plane because I didn't get to Boston till 2018 <laughs> or 2017. New Hampshire's my favorite yeah. state, even though I I'm Canadian. see everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we are almost like at the top of the hour. So this is the part where you promote yourself, promote the sites, go over the websites, any events that you have coming up that you'd like to promote for people to come to the site. Anything well, it's a holiday. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I want to first say thank you so much for having me on this evening. Oh, and uh, and I'm happy Mark connected us, but I just love being on your show so much. And if we have thank any you. future discoveries and if I can get that app and up, maybe back. we'll find some more petroglyphs. That would be wonderful. And then know? just come back. <laughs> and I, and yeah, we can do that. <laughs> but it is a holiday. Sense. It is a holiday season. And uh, you know, I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday. And we got the uh, next Wednesday, we'll have a winter solstice sunset. Oh, nice. And uh, so it was 52, 52 years ago. We saw the very first one with my eyes. Uh, th uh, th three years before that, the guy that cleared out the clearing in 1965 actually took the first photographs in 67. But So that anniversary is coming up. And then we'll have the, uh, the, uh, the February 1st, which is uh, called Imbolc by the Celts, but it's also around – you know, Candlemas and Groundhog's Day is a cross-quarter day will be after that, you know. So we have things going on throughout the year, and our website is StonehengeUSA.com. We list all these right different here. things. Yes. And if you go to that, you know, um, you can pull up that 12-minute uh, theater video and see it. You can do the app, and you can do a complete tour without ever coming. It won't cost you a dime to look at it. It's very good. If you use it at our site, you'll love it too. Mm -hmm. And um, there's other website, telephone number, and email address, and we try to answer questions. You can call us too. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on Instagram and Facebook too. We have that information. So uh, uh, it's all, all there. That, yeah. All that is yeah. in the show description. So all they have to just click on yeah. the link. All your links are there. Everything's there. Yeah. So that should make it really easy. Thank you for doing that too. Oh, <laughs> you're very welcome. Yeah. You'll have, yeah. have the website. I sent it to Michelle and Michelle okay. can email it to, it to you. I Googled yes, it so. for you. You might no, be able to you. use it for the solstice. You never know, right? We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You, what we'd yeah. like to do is a live Facebook with the solstice, but um, we'll see if we can do that sometimes. Well, too. That'd be kind of fun. Be yeah. able yeah. to get pictures, like get this yeah. program yeah. running before that and share that with everybody that day. You never know if we you get it that. you know, yeah. going by then. It looks it simple. Yeah. We'll yeah, try it. <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah, we'll do that eventually. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for thank joining you. us. And I, I will You're be welcome. in touch with you. Um, and uh, I always like to surprise people with how many people were listening. So I'm going to give you a bear of good news, hopefully. <laughs> Probably yeah. I'll ask you our producer. That seems to be MIA. But <laughs> we'll figure that out too. But thank you again for joining us. And um, I will I will email you shortly. So thank both of you. I really enjoyed thank it. Happy holidays so to you. And Try to stay you warm. Well. Yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. Cold up right. here. It's freezing <laughs> so, here. In yeah. New Orleans, you'll be okay, though. <laughs> you should. Yeah. We'll see. That will come. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. It's nice to see you. Thank you yeah. for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. both of you. And thank your audience, you. too. Good night. Thank Good night, you. now. Good night. Bye-bye. Well, that was just so much fun. Oh, my gosh. Very informative. I did not see half of that coming. That was just fabulous. Again, the fact that it was that close and I had no bloody idea 
goes to show you like and i'm i research man i am yeah, like, on everything and when this was brought to my attention I'm like how did i not know this i was mortified i did not know this that was funny no <laughs> no no i mean it was funny though the, the your excitement when we found out he was coming on michelle was just ecstatic i, I love this stuff i yeah. love this stuff it's fascinating he's so delightful and he's so generous with his time he's just wonderful i am so glad um that he came on and that um we could share him with all of you guys so definitely check him out go to the website even go to google images check out all these pictures it is fascinating so huge huge thank you to dennis stone i mean huge for coming <laughs> on to the show tonight especially last minute we're really really grateful uh big thank you to folgers coffee who sponsored the show uh big thank you to dr snick aka justin snicker as a sponsor of the show for his intro and outro we thank you um whatever platform you guys are listening to please uh, we would appreciate your support by either subscribing following liking whatever the case may be, we would appreciate you. If you want to contact us, please do so at the outer realm contact at gmail.com, the outer realm contact at gmail.com, or just go to the outer realm Facebook page, click on email and that will take you to us. Now we are backing up a little bit because we are coming around to the holidays and we are going to be suspending some things. Um, as far as booking for the shows, we are well into middle to end of March. Yes, we are. Mm -hmm. I know. <clears throat> I know. And but I can tell you, we've got phenomenal people coming on. It's just going to be really, really amazing. Names you've never heard of. Um, topics are just abundant and unbelievable. So definitely 2023 is going to be another fantastic year. Now, tomorrow night, we welcome Rob Gutro. And he was in chat room earlier today. And of course, in keeping with a nice more lighthearted December. He's going to be discussing, he has actually four books out now, by the way, uh, Pets in the Afterlife, one through four. And um, I will list them all in the show tomorrow for you oh, guys to, to check them out. Yeah. And, and it's just going to be really amazing. We, we try to do this um, around this time of year, just because yeah. of the fact that, you know, we, we, we lose our, our, our fur babies as well. And it's just always so nice to hear stories about them being around. So this mm -hmm. is going to be wonderful. He's just been delightful to deal with over email. I cannot wait to meet him. Um, reminder for tomorrow, we have a new show, week two, Spirit Quest, The Journey of Life with Paul Francis, uh, 6, p well, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 7 Central. Um, he, his last archive is just going through the roof. So, you know, you guys, I have no doubt will, will enjoy the continuous content that he has to offer. And of course, tis the season. So, you know, it's going to be really good. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so go ahead and check him out. Um, so in the meantime, guys, thank you so much. Uh, for tuning in. I know the chat room has just been lighting up, but again, we tried to stick with questions that are geared to the topic and um, there's just a lot of people that we missed. However, again, you know, the most important thing is that he get all this information out because it's raising awareness for this amazing location. So hopefully the world will settle down a little bit and yeah, we're going to go check it out. So anyway, thank you. We will see you all tomorrow night and um, have a good evening. Behave. <laughs>